Well, good evening. Welcome to everybody. Glad that you're here for our uh, Wednesday night Bible study as we wrap up the book of Revelation tonight. This is uh, the, the, the final six verses we'll be looking at tonight, chapter 22, verses 16 through 21. And uh, we're finally made it. This is our 28th session in the book of Revelation. And uh, someone said, Pastor Jesus is going to come back before you finish the book. But uh, we made it. We're here to chapter 28, and, uh, or rather chapter 22, session 28, and we're glad that you joined us. Those joining us online, we always have a large uh, crowd on uh, Wednesday night that join us online from all over the place studying with us Revelation. We're glad that you joined us as well. Let's have a word of prayer, and we'll start. God, we want to thank you tonight for the power of your word. Thank you, Lord, that we can read your word together. God, you can speak to our hearts. You can show us uh, the ultimate triumph that we have as believers in Jesus. And Father, as we reach the final chapter of, of this great book of yours, I, I pray tonight the Holy Spirit will be our teacher, will be the one that impresses us what you want us to know. Thank you for everyone who's joined us here live, those who have joined us online. and pray your blessings upon each one. May the Spirit again be our teacher this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, after tonight, starting next Wednesday night, we're going to go for the next several weeks uh, talking about Revelation. Uh, there have been many questions that have come up that you've had and other people have had about the book that we're going to talk about. How, will we know each other in heaven? We're going to talk about that one week. Um, what about the rapture? How come the rapture is never mentioned in, in Revelation? Isn't it interesting that entire book about the second coming and the rapture is never mentioned. Why not? Well, we'll talk about that. Where does Russia play a role? Is Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38, 39? Is that Russia? Where's the U.S.? We didn't say anything in the U.S. in Revelation. Where is the United States in Revelation? And so we'll, we'll answer all of those questions and look at many more that I think that you'll find interesting. So we'll be taking those questions and, and actually putting them together. And if you have any, feel free to, others, feel free to, to send them to me uh, by email. And over the course of the next several weeks, then we, before our next book study, uh, we will be looking at the questions uh, that some people have raised concerning Revelation. Also want to remind you that we have available for you, or will have available, we don't yet, a flash drive of all 28 sessions. Actually, we're going to include the sessions of the questions also. So another several weeks before it will be completed, we'll put them all on a flash drive. If you want a flash drive, just let us know in the church office, and we'll be glad to get you one. This is all the sessions of Revelation that I've taught every Wednesday night will be on here. You can also go to our website, uh, go to media, and you can see all of them on there as well. But if you'd prefer to have a flash drive, let us know in the church office, and we will be glad to get you one. We'll put everything on there, and then once we're finished with all of the questions and everything, you'll have a complete flash drive, and we'll be glad to get that to you. So let us know if you would like that. All right, chapter 22, let's look at our outline. First of all, let's start looking at 22, just as a, as a summary to get to where we are. Starting with the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, letter A on your outline, the city's main street, heaven's main street, starts with the throne right in the middle. It's described in verses 1 through 7. It's like you zoom in further from chapter 21. It's larger, new heavens, new earth. Then there's the new Jerusalem. And now it's the main street of the new Jerusalem. Your zoom's getting better to where you zoom in to the main street. Looking down the main street, uh, the throne of God and of the Lamb, the river, the water of life, clear as crystal, tree of life on each side. 
uh, leaves are uh, prospering in each month rather than we just know uh, periodic and seasonal uh, fruit that on trees now that will be leaves every month, fruit every month. Nothing will be accursed. We'll see Jesus face to face. There will be no more night. And he says for the first time in three of uh, three times in chapter 22, I am coming soon. Then we get to verses 8 through 15, letter B on your outline, and you will see the final words, chapters 8 through 15, actually 8 through 21, all the final words. But 8 through 15, as I talked about last Wednesday night, it's hard to, it's hard to uh, outline because it's like he just talks about different subjects as the book is ending. Um, John affirms the angel's words are true. Uh, in, in verse 10, he talks about how the ancient writings would be sealed up, the documents would be sealed. Uh, but Jesus said, don't seal the book of Revelation, keep it open so people can read it and understand what's going to take place. And then in verse 13 of chapter 22, Jesus is given three titles, Alpha and Omega, first and last, beginning and end. And that talks about His eternal sovereignty uh, how he finishes what he begins, and that Jesus is the beginner of history and the culminator of history, and that's where we left off last, um, last Wednesday night in verse 15. So let's pick up tonight, let her see on your outline. Let's look at verses 16 and 17 a little more closely, and this is what we're going to look at concerning testimony. Listen to what, um, what this section says, verse 16. I, Jesus have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. All right, let's stop there for a moment. Our section tonight begins with Jesus talking to John. Remember, John saw the revelation. He's the one that wrote it. It begins with Jesus talking to John then why aren't these words in red? In your Bible, if you have a red-lettered edition, everything Jesus said is in red. Why isn't this? Because some translators believe the angel is speaking rather than Jesus. The angel is telling what Jesus said. Well, it, it looks like Jesus talking. So if your translation is one with black letters there, I, I think it should be red because it appears we have good evidence in this passage, starting in 16, that Jesus starts talking to John. Now think about this. They lived together for three and a half years, remember? John was a disciple of Jesus. John was one of the twelve. So, for three and a half years, Jesus and John, they 24-7, they, they're together. And then the crucifixion, and then Jesus ascended to heaven, and now Jesus and John start talking together again. So, they're old friends, and Jesus starts mentioning to John several things to close the book. The first thing he says is, I, Jesus... That's the only time in the entire Bible you'll see that phrase. Never in the Gospels did Jesus say, I, Jesus. Never. It's like you're testifying. I, Jesus. It's like he's testifying to the truth of this. 
You'll never see that, those two words together anywhere else in all the Bible. So it's kind of showing that Jesus is, in, in essence, testifying that this book is true. So this shows Jesus' role in producing the book of Revelation. It strengthens the authority of the book. It's almost like Jesus is authenticating Revelation for us. He's saying it's true. It's a book that appears to be too good to be true, right? It appears to be, you know, just maybe pie in the sky, fairy tale. And so critics will say, well, this is a book fabricated because believers in the first century are being persecuted by the Roman government and they're under intense persecution. And so they make up a book to comfort them, give them hope. And Jesus says, I, Jesus, authenticate what John's writing to you. Joseph Seiss, the old Lutheran minister back in the 1800s, used to say this. He said, quote, either this book is the most fanciful, blasphemous forgery the world's ever known, and it's unworthy of our attention much less its place in Holy Scripture. Or, this book is the most inspired, authoritative work ever written. It's either one of the two. And in this verse, this passage, 16 and 17, Jesus gives a testimony. I vouch the, 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 the one who is truth, vouches these words are true. So that in itself raises the level of the importance of the book of Revelation. But notice some other things he said in verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things. His angel. Who's his angel? Well, some believe it's the main angel of Revelation who's joined, showing John around and showing him all these things. Um, you remember another time in the Gospels Jesus talked about his angel, their angels, talking about children? Some theologians believe that they're guardian angels and that, that the, the personal pronoun his or their shows guardian angels. Well, we don't know for certain. Nowhere else in the Bible is guardian angels talked about. That'd be another good question, wouldn't it? Are there guardian angels? And so here he says, I sent my angel. That's an odd phrase for Jesus to say. But I sent my angel to testify to the things for the churches. Who's that? Well, you remember the book of Revelation is written to seven. Seven churches of Asia Minor. They're listed in chapters 2 and 3. So, he, he sent this letter to the churches, but also to future churches of Jesus, which we are. So, it's an open book. It's not a private book. It's not a private letter. This is a public book and a public letter, not for the elite, but for everybody. So, it's sent for the churches, and that's the first time the church is mentioned since chapter 3 of Revelation. 
Chapter 2 and 3 mentions seven churches, and this is the first time. Now, the bride is mentioned, but not the word ecclesia, church, is not mentioned, except here from where we started in chapter 3. Look at verse 17. Well, first of all, before you do, one other phrase here, two other phrases. I am the root and the descendant of David. Now, the root means the originator. And the descendant means someone who comes after. So which one is it? Is Jesus the originator of David or the descendant of David? It's a good question. In fact, if you remember, Jesus asked the religious leaders in Matthew 22 that exact question, and they had no answer. You remember Jesus one time, Matthew 22, verse 41 through 46, asked the religious leaders, he said, oh, by the way, um, what do you guys think about the Christ? Is, is he David's Lord or is he a descendant of David? They didn't say anything. He said, how could, if, he's, if he came after David, how could David say in the Holy Spirit, Sit, my Lord will, will sit put under, uh, sit at, at, foot, at my foot all, all the rest of the kingdoms. So, how, how, did he, how did he be his Lord, but his descendant? And they didn't answer him. And so here he says it again I'm the originator of David. Before David was, before Abraham, Jesus was. Before David was, Jesus was. But yet he's the descendant of David. He's eternal. It's a messianic title. It comes from Isaiah 11.1. 1. Jesus fulfills all the prophecies of the lineage of David. Remember, God promised David, forever you'll have a descendant upon the throne. And here he is, descendant of David. Heaven's eternal throne. A root is buried. But a star shines forth. I am the root of David and the morning star. Root does works where you can't see. Morning star is very visible. He's both. David founded the old Jerusalem. Jesus founds the new Jerusalem. And so he makes the connection to David, which bumfuzzled the religious leaders. And here he does it again. But notice the last phrase. I'm the descendant of David, the root, the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Now, back in ancient biblical days, the ancients knew of the star that appeared in the east just before dawn. Just before a new day would dawn, there would be a star in the sky in the east, brightest star in the sky, and they called it the morning star because it would rise just before the morning began. And we still see that same star. Look at the picture of it. The morning star. Any of you just before dawn ever seen that? It's Venus. Venus is the third brightest star. The other smaller one, that's Jupiter, right underneath it. 
Venus comes closest to the earth, and, and Venus um, is called the morning star. Because just before morning, we see it the brightest. It's the third brightest star in our sky behind the sun and the moon. It's called the morning star because it is symbolizing to us a new day is almost here. A new day is dawning. We see it appear in the sky. And so Jesus shines the brightest of all and he is heralding a new day. Revelation ends with a new day being welcomed. Sin is gone. Evil is gone. Goodness is here forever. You get to enjoy his presence forever. The new day is dawning. I'm the morning star. Do you know who else in the Bible is called the morning star? Satan. He has fallen. Lucifer's called that. Which means, Lucifer means angel of light. He's not light, he's darkness. But everything Jesus ever had, Satan tried to duplicate it. He tried to counterfeit it. Everything good, remember the unholy trinity early in Revelation? Everything good, Satan of God, Satan tried to counterfeit it. And he was called the morning star. It's also a prophecy of Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. You remember when Balaam is given the oracle against Israel, he prophesies that there will come a morning star that will come from Numbers 24, 17. The star would come forth from Jacob. And here, that prophecy in Jesus is fulfilled. So it may just sound like a normal verse to you whenever Jesus said, I, Jesus, send my angel to testify these things. I am the root and the descendant of David and the bright morning star. That is filled prophecy fulfilled now look at verse 17 the spirit and the bride say come and let the one who hears say come and let the one who is thirsty come let the one who desires to take the water of life without price now, my question is, the Spirit and the Bride, the Bride who is the church, the Holy Spirit and the church is saying, come. Who's it talking to? Jesus? Are you? It appears to be an invitation. If you're thirsty, if you want the water of life, come to Christ and you'll receive it. That's what Isaiah 55 said. Oh, everybody that's thirsty, come to the waters and buy it without price. So this seems to be Isaiah 51, one all over again. So is whenever the spirit and the bride say, come, is it telling Jesus, come? Or is it telling people that are lost, come? You hear what's going to take place one last chance. Come. One last invitation. Those that are thirsty is a reference to those people who are in need. Those people who are lost, they have a spiritual need. Those who feel the need of thirst the most. You come. If you're thirsty, come. That's the only stipulation that's put on it. 
doesn't say you have to be good. doesn't say you have to be a Jew. doesn't say you have to be a Gentile. doesn't say you have to go to church. All it says is, if you're thirsty, come to the water of life. You know, I really find it interesting that Revelation closes with an invitation. You ever thought of that? It closes with one last invitation. If you're thirsty, come. Whosoever, it's a big word, isn't it? Doesn't say the elect. If you're one of the elect, doesn't say that. It just says, whosoever you are, if you're thirsty, you come. Charles Spurgeon said, whosoever is a big word in the Bible. It is a big word. Because it means anybody. So if you want to come to Christ, you come to Christ. Here's something else I find interesting. All of the other faith systems of the world, all the other religions, they don't say come and take. They say come and bring. Bring something to appease your God. Bring something that makes you right before him. Bring something that justifies you. Christianity is the only faith system that says, don't bring anything. You just come and get something. Come and receive it. Because the bottom line is, there's nothing you can bring that justifies you before God. You can't bring good works. You can't bring church attendance. You can't bring how long you've been in Sunday school. You can't bring the good things you've done. There are filthy rags in the sight of God's holiness. You've got nothing to bring. It's the only faith that says you come and take, but you've got nothing to bring. Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, you name it. Hinduism all says you come and bring something. And Jesus says you come and take. Take of the water of life freely. Look at verses 18 and 19. Letter D on your outline, warning. Jesus said, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Now, let's talk about this warning for a second. Again, these words are not in red. Um, it, it appears Jesus is still speaking, though. We have good reason to believe that he is. And it was common in the ancient world for writers of letters to safeguard their writings with warnings or curses if you tried to change what was written in there. Now, it was a common practice. You go all the way back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, all the way back, that far back, Deuteronomy 4, 2, and chapter 12, verse 32, Moses says, whoever takes away from the words of this book or adds to the words of this book, God will add plagues to you. That, that's a long time ago. 
So it was very common practice for a letter to be sent, someone intercept that letter and add to it what they want to be said, hoping that a person would read it with the authority of the original writer, and they intercept it and they change it where something could benefit them. The recipient gets it, and oh, okay, well, Paul the Apostle said this, I must do that, and they change it up. So it's very common for letters to be changed, altered in some way, falsified, or tampered with in some way. So there were curses and warnings that if anybody did that. And I find it interesting that God closes his book and his Bible by saying, Nobody better add to or take away from the words of this book. That includes copyists, that includes, includes translators, that includes preachers, that includes teachers, many of you are teachers, that includes you. It's talking about, I believe, a deliberate distortion or perversion of what God says. Sometimes, folks, we get a little uncomfortable with what God has said in His Word. And maybe we get a little embarrassed by what it says in culture, and culture laughs at us for believing what we believe, whether it's about homosexuality or marriage or alcohol or whatever it may be, tithing, whatever it may be. We get a little uncomfortable or a little ashamed. Oh, you still don't believe that, do you? And we're tempted to change it. Tone it down. Delete maybe this or that. Or skip over this or that. And God has a warning. That's why I believe it's best to preach and teach what it says. If it offends, I would rather offend them than offend him. So don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Don't be embarrassed. Don't let people laugh at what you believe. Because what he's given us is truth. And folks, you never have to apologize for truth. It doesn't matter what culture says. So he gives a warning about deliberate omissions or perversions. Don't add to it. Don't delete it. Punishment will come from God if you do. And the punishment he says is going to come will be the plagues that are listed here will be added to you. Remember all those plagues we talked about that were kind of a repeat of the plagues from the Exodus? So he says, this is a heinous sin he's talking about. Don't just take it lightly. There's a high price for tampering. Still is in our culture. You tamper with a document. You tamper with uh, mail. You tamper with evidence in a criminal case. There's a price for you to pay because you're taking what's true and you're trying to alter it. There's a price for tampering. And God has a price for tampering as well. Don't tamper with it. So it's important to us, I believe, as Christians to receive truth, understand truth, communicate it clearly, and communicate it accurately. 
God's truth. And it also shows us that the book of Revelation can be understood, by the way. A lot of people, oh, it can never be understood. You can't understand it. Sure you can. Why would he tell us, don't alter anything about it. It's exactly the way it is, the way you need to leave it, and expect us to read it. Of course we can understand it. Absolutely we can. So this shows us that God's word can be, can understand it. Now, I've heard some people say, where it says in 21, if anyone takes away from the words of this book, uh, God will take his share of the tree of life away. I've heard a couple of things here. I've, I've heard, first of all, that it must be a lost person that will do that because a saved person would never alter with God's word. Eh, don't be so naive. Saved people can do it just as well. But I've also heard that he's talking about here that you'll take away his share of the tree of life, that you'll lose your salvation. I've heard that. That if you alter God's word and you're a believer, you will lose your salvation. He doesn't say that here. He says he will lose his share of the tree of life. It sounds like he's saying you will, you will be, be, be punished with losing rewards or losing privilege in heaven. What does that look like? I don't know. It does say, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, the Bible does say that there will be those that reign in heaven, where will reign over other people or over other nations, but you will lose privilege or reward somehow in heaven if you take away from the words of the book. Now notice something else here I find really interesting. The book of Revelation, if you remember, chapter 1, verse 3, begins with a blessing. Chapter 1, verse 3, whoever reads this book is going to be blessed. So it begins with a blessing, now it ends with a curse. It closes with a curse for those people who pervert the message. Opens the blessing, if you read it, but it closes, but don't alter it. Don't alter what you just read, or you'll be cursed. Now let's go to the final two verses, 20 and 21. Letter E on your outline, come, Lord Jesus. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Third time he's told us that. Remember the word means quickly, suddenly. I'm coming quickly, suddenly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's talk about these two verses just a moment. Third time now in chapter 22, Jesus has promised he's coming quickly. His return could happen at any moment and at any time. In fact, his return is so certain, you'll notice the word surely is before it and the word amen's after it. Did you notice that? Surely, I'm coming soon, amen. Anytime the Bible puts the word surely before something and amen after it, you better believe it. He's coming soon. These are the, uh, in fact, John even adds his own amen to it. These are the only two verses in Revelation that combine the words Lord Jesus. Notice it says, come Lord Jesus. The only time in all of Revelation you'll find those two words together. Now Paul put them together occasionally, Lord Jesus. 
but it's not mentioned anywhere else. Lord Jesus. The words acknowledge Jesus' deity, lordship, and right to reign. And it's the word in Aramaic, Maranatha. You ever heard the word Maranatha? It's an Aramaic expression that means, come Lord Jesus. The word Maranatha was very familiar in the first century. It was, in fact, Maranatha was one of the earliest confessions in the early church. Did you know that? They, uh, uh, Christos as Kyrios, it was the earliest confession. Christos as Kyrios, Jesus is Lord. And Maranatha, which means come Lord Jesus. And so believers would greet one another many times in the early church. Christos as Kyrios, Jesus is Lord. And that was really the first confession of faith. Jesus is Lord. And they would leave each other. They wouldn't say, bye, see y'all later. They'd say, Maranatha, he's coming. And that's how they close their services. That's how they close personal interactions. Two believers, Christos is curious, welcome. And Maranatha, as they left, Jesus is coming. Come, Lord Jesus. And so I find it interesting that the Bible closes the same way. Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. That's how it ends. But notice something about verse 21. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Amen. That was a very unusual way to end a letter in the ancient world. Now, Paul ended his that way. But most letters did not end that way. It's a very unusual way to end a letter in the ancient world. And notice the word that's used there to the very last verse of the Bible. What does it talk about? Grace. Grace. Unmerited favor. Grace is the final word. Grace is what you need. Grace is what I need. And the final word of the Bible is grace. How appropriate. Grace has been prevalent all throughout Scripture. You go all the way back to Abraham, he was chosen by grace. You go to Isaac, it was grace. You go to Jacob, that old deceiver didn't deserve anything. It was grace. And you go to the nation of Israel, they're in captivity, first to the Assyrians, to the Babylonians. They deserve to be exterminated, but they're kept alive by grace. And then you go to the end of the Old Testament, the 400 years of silence, God, through His grace, was raising up a Redeemer. And Jesus split open the Gospels as we open up the New Testament. And His message was grace. And you go to the New Testament church, and the message was grace. And now we go to the conclusion of the Bible, and the Bible ends with the word grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. Did you know the final word of the Bible's grace? One last thing before we get to our epilogue. The Old Testament, you know how the Old Testament ends? You ever looked at the last verse of the Old Testament? It's Malachi chapter 4, verse 6. Don't need to turn there. I'll tell you what it says. The last phrase of the Old Testament says, quote, 
lest I come, this is God talking, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Boom, Old Testament closes, 400 years of darkness, no word from God. And the last thing he said before, before darkness and no word was, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. That's how the Old Testament ends. How does the New Testament end? Curse is gone. Grace is here. Ends of the blessing. Praise God. Old Testament curse. New Testament. Maranatha. Grace to you. Ended with the curse. This ends with a blessing. Now, let's go to our epilogue. Letter F on your outline. Say a few words and then I'll close. John has looked into heaven. He has written to us what he saw. And we've covered it. And he wrote down a long apocalyptic prophecy about things soon to come. He has seen the grandeur of heaven, and he has seen the terror of the lake of fire. He has seen the enemy overthrown and all that is evil done away with, and he's seen the victory of the Lamb. So, don't look around you and be distressed. Look ahead and be blessed. I find it interesting the Bible has now come full circle. When you look at the first three chapters of Genesis and the last three chapters of Revelation, there's a strange connection. The issues and the dilemmas that were created in the first three chapters of Genesis, sin enters and the earth is cursed and we're cursed. They're addressed and they're perfectly resolved in the last three chapters of Revelation. We've come full circle. When we began the Bible, we discover a sovereign God creating a universe as home for a people who are about to be made in His image. And He placed them into an environment of paradise. But the enemy came spoil the scene, destruction entered, death entered, 66 books come and go, telling the story of God's redemptive plan, that a Savior is going to come, and He's going to redeem you, Jesus Christ. Hope and restoration is coming, and now He's come in full. And at the end of the Bible, all of this chaos of the first three chapters of Genesis, all that chaos is judged. Satan is defeated, he's banished, death is destroyed, curse is lifted, paradise is even better than it was before. It's eternal, it's glorified, it's unified. The seen and the unseen realms join together under one head, Jesus Christ. So this ends God's written revelation to us. It's closed. Period. Closed. No more. No need for another testament of Jesus Christ. No need for the Book of Mormon. You don't need anything more. Everything we need to know, it's closed. They'll never uncover another book of the Bible. Never. It's closed. 
God will never need to give you a dream or a vision. His revelation is closed. It's given to you. You don't need a dream. You don't need to have a vision. You've got His eternal Word. You've got it here. Everything you need to know. It's closed. And Revelation to me closes in an interesting way. Listen to what Robert Mount said. He said, quote, in fact, he was one of the only editing team of the ESV version of the Bible. Robert Mount said, quote, this book closes with a confession that the answers to the world's problems do not lie in our ability to create a better world, but it closes in the return of the one whose sovereign power controls the course of our affairs and he makes all things new. Friends, how often do you hear it's up to us to make a better world? The Bible never tells us that. What it tells us is it's not up to us to make the better world. This world ends with the sovereign power who controls the world coming to make all things new. And it's interesting to me that the book of Revelation closes with the admonition to readiness and watchfulness the entire message of the Old Testament is, be ready. How many parables did Jesus tell us? Be ready. And then whenever Jesus spoke the Olivet Discourse, when his disciples said, Lord, when are these things going to happen? And he starts telling all the things that are going to happen. And he keeps saying, be watchful, be, wa be watching, be watching, be watching. Five times at the end of Mark 13, be watching, be watching, be watching, be watching. He's telling us over and over, watch, it's coming. Don't let it catch you unprepared. Now, we want to know the details. And what he tells us is, you stay ready. Only a master author could have put this story together in such a wonderful book that has come all the way full circle to where humanity is finally finally redeemed. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Father, thank you tonight for your word and thank you for how you have taught us your word. And God, I pray that this will always be a church. I will always be a pastor. This will always be full of teachers who never add to your word or delete your word or change your word. Father, we believe it, we live it, and we proclaim it. In the midst of a culture that devalues your word, God, may we be ones who stand for it. And Lord, may you bless us. God, thank you tonight for the kind of Savior that you are. Thank you, Lord, that humanity has finally been redeemed, that the Bible has come full circle, and all the chaos started by the enemy is going to be redeemed one day. And I thank you for the victory that comes. So, Lord, our final prayer to you is Maranatha. Even so, come Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if um, you have any questions or comments, feel free to see me afterwards or email me. We'll be looking at questions or, uh, about Revelation coming up starting next week. And hope you have a great week. We'll see you on Sunday. God bless you.